thinking as we were singing that last song, what it's going to be like to be singing that song face-to-face to Jesus with millions of others, a band or an orchestra like you would never imagine. This is going to be something. It was. Today we continue our sermon theme for the year, God's purposes for his people. You'll notice when we read our verses in just a minute that Paul uses a question and answer format. He does this Q&A four times in chapters 6 and 7, and he does it because he wants to anticipate and to address misconceptions. The question is given in verse 1, and the answer is given in verses 2 to 14, and our key verse for today is verse 13. So remain seated. Let's read together from the screen, Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Any parents that wish can dismiss their children to step in front. What I want to begin this morning with the ideas that are behind Paul's question in verse 1, so these ideas prepare us for Paul's question in verse 1. The first idea, God graciously forgives the sins of Christians. That's very true. It's something that we depend on. But remember this. Remember that Christianity was still new when Paul wrote this letter. The Christians in Rome had grown up either Jewish or Gentile. And religion, all, pretty much all religions, including Judaism in that day, emphasized 
that you're acceptable to your God by keeping a set of rules. And so the grace that Christians talk is a radical idea. Again, grace is talking about God's gifts, things that we don't deserve that he gives us. It was a radical thing. It was brand new, so no wonder there was some abuse of it. And some people saw Christian grace as, if you want to call it, a free pass to sin however they wished. And you see God's grace also in the book of Romans. In fact, we're looking at that being the sermon theme for next year. You certainly see God's grace in Romans 3. You also see it just before chapter 6 in Romans 5, verses 20 and 21, where Paul writes this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's a key thought right there. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's what is going on. Sin in every one of us reacts to God's law by breaking God's law. And the result is physical and spiritual death. God is the one who grace in the form of forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and eternal life. Now, when you see the word righteousness, think of godly, right living. When you see the word unrighteousness, think selfish, disobedient living. Well, God can forgive us. That's one of the, the key gifts that he gives us. He, God can forgive us because Jesus paid the debt that our sin creates. So the first idea is that God graciously forgives our sin. The second idea is that having more of God's grace is a good thing. You see that idea in the Romans 5 passage we just looked at. Well, it's the next thought that is framed in Paul's question in verse 1 that goes wrong. True, God forgives sin. More of God's grace is a good thing. I like how verse 1 is, reads in the New Living Translation. There it says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more kindness and forgiveness? Do you see the idea? If we sin, then God forgives us. If we sin more, God forgives us more. Forgiveness is grace. Okay, and Paul's answer, by no means. Or to put it another way, never, ever in a million years. Sin always leads to death and destruction. Sin is always contrary to God's character. So let me share with you three thoughts that relate to this idea right here. First, a person who truly understands and values God's grace won't abuse it. Now, we may understand it. A lot of people are in church have heard about God's goodness and his forgiveness. So the question is, do we value it? And the answer for all of us is, at times, no, we don't. But if we do, when we do value God's goodness and his forgiveness, we won't abuse it. Next, you have to question whether a person who lives like God's grace is a free pass to do whatever is truly a Christian. You can talk however you want to talk, but your words sometimes are a whole lot louder and your actions, not, not your words, your actions are a lot louder than your words are. And then thirdly, God won't permit a Christian who gives in to this idea continue to continue in it without some consequence. 
that he hates him. Well, starting at verse 2, Paul, so we already have the short answer to the question. That's no. Okay, well then Paul gives a long answer, an extended answer to the question in verses 2 to 14. And he begins with a long list of indicatives. Now, it's a nice phrase, indicatives and imperatives. I didn't come up with it. They both start with I. What do you call that, alliteration? You can remember it? Indicatives indicate. It's talking about truths. In this case, truths, things that are true about Christians because of what Jesus has done. So let's look at that list. First, Christians have died to sin. Now, this can easily be a confusing statement, but it refers to a spiritual change. This involves a change of loyalties first. Before a person becomes a Christian, our loyalties are to ourselves. Afterwards, more and more, our loyalties begin to move towards God. It also involves a change in the way we live. To be more specific, a Christian will no longer constantly sin. Here's what I mean. For all of us, we are naturally rebellious and sinful people. Not just because of the bad choices we make, but because of the sinful, selfish nature that's in us that we all have that moves us to those choices. So without God working in us, all of our words and deeds are tainted by our selfishness and sinfulness. It's like everything we touch. Well, a person who, quote, dies to sin at the same time becomes alive to God and becomes alive to God in a way they never were before. So if, if you haven't died to sin, that means you're dead to God. If you have died to sin, that means you're alive to God. Then the next thing he says, Christians are baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, Paul assumes that a Christian has trusted Jesus and has been baptized. And baptism, baptism was and is a public statement of faith in Jesus alone. But Paul has another thought in mind, I believe, as well. And that is that Christians are spiritually united with Jesus. He's actually going to use that word united later in the list. And we're going to talk about it more in a minute. Well, if we've been baptized, we've also been baptized into Jesus' death, which is how a Christian dies to sin. We've been, a Christian has been buried with Jesus. A Christian has been raised with Jesus and now walks in newness of life. So this new way of life is a result of what Jesus has done for us. And then he continues in being a good speaker and everything. He repeats himself. So Paul continues and says, we, a Christian has been united with Jesus in his death, has been united with Jesus in his resurrection. Our old self was crucified with Jesus, and the body of sin in us is brought to nothing. So here's another result. But now he's going to restate the same idea twice more. He says a Christian is no longer enslaved to sin, and we've been set free from sin. Now being when he says set free, Paul means that Christians are freed from the power of sin, but Christians are not yet freed from the presence of sin. That becomes very clear when you read the rest of these passages. So to put it another way, 
we're not slaves to sin anymore, but we're still tempted by sin. And then he gives one last result. The Christians will live with Jesus. And we see that that means we're going to live with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the key to all these indicatives, all these things we just looked at, is that a Christian is spiritually united to Jesus. In a way that you and I cannot understand, Jesus spiritually connects himself with every Christian. And notice, Jesus connects himself. We don't do the connecting. He does. He connects himself with every Christian so that when Jesus died on the cross, the Christian died to sin. We get the benefit. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the Christian is given spiritual, eternal life that can never be taken away. Jesus gives Christians all the benefits that we just looked at and more. Jesus also gives, puts his spirit in each Christian. And the Holy Spirit teaches us, comforts us, convicts us when we do things wrong, enables us to do what God tells us to, gives spiritual gifts for the benefit of the whole church and more. So we're talking about this change that comes in the life of a Christian. You can also think of this spiritual change in accounting terms. And I kind of like accounting. Because you always know if things add up right or wrong. You can see the results. I remember my dad taking accounting in college, and he tells the, the accountant, he had worked on this one problem that he had to turn in, and he was one penny off. And he could not find it anywhere. He had worked on it for an hour. His roommate comes in, and he says, please, please help me. I, I'm, I'm a penny off somewhere. And his friend goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, right there. Think of this spiritual change in accounting terms. When any person sins, they incur a spiritual debt to God. And this is a debt that none of us can repay except through our own eternal punishment by God for our rebellion against him. But because Jesus took all the sins of every Christian on himself when he died on the cross, Jesus can credit each Christian's account so that the debt is paid in full. But Jesus didn't stop there. Jesus also credits each Christian with his record of perfect obedience to God and his delight in God. And what you see over and over again, that these are all gifts from God that he gives us. Well, let's look a little more at the results. I just kind of mentioned them as we walk through the list. Let's look at, at the results of Jesus' work. First, Christians are given a new life. Christians are called to live a new to live life a new way on a new basis. Before we are rescued by God, all of us have ourselves at the center of our lives. A Christian's new basis for living is, is centered on God and what God has done for us through Jesus. So our focus changes, just as, as Bruce was talking about in terms of worship. And, and it, whoever that writer was, he put it together, put it so well. That if you and I are pursuing worship of God, then more and more all the other parts of our lives begin to line up and work as God intends. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be any problems. There will. But more and more, we're lining up because we're beginning to do what God made us to do, to center our lives on God. Well, 
that's part of this new life we're to live as Christians. And the new way of life is to begin now here on this earth. And this new way of living <clears throat> includes fighting against our own sin, living under God's direction, living, <clears throat> living in the strength and the wisdom that God provides and depending totally on God. Another result that I mentioned is that Christians are freed from the power of sin, but not yet from the presence of sin. You see, we all still struggle with temptation and sin. And when you read all that Paul presents and everything in the New Testament, actually, but today, for example, in the indicatives and the imperatives, Paul does not deny at all the struggle that Christians have with their sinful, selfish nature. In fact, in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul is going to talk about his own personal struggle. And he's going to talk about how messed up and how much he struggles with this. And his end is, thank God, because of Jesus, who has actually been instructed. So even though we have this struggle, Christians don't have to be controlled by their selfishness anymore. Christians can more and more obey God from a heart that loves God. And as, again, talking about worship, the more we worship, the more that we remember and we recount, this is what God has done for us. This is what God is doing today. The more we see our own need, the more likely we are to worship and the more likely we are to repent. And then thirdly, Christians will one day live with Jesus forever. Part of what that means is that God is working in Christians in this life both to transform us and to prepare us for eternity. This isn't heaven. And sometimes we get off track when we try to make this more like heaven. We think heaven would be. Well, after listing the indicatives, Paul gives the commands, the imperatives. He says, consider yourselves dead to sin. Consider, consider yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your bodies. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Instead, present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So let's look at these a little bit more. When Paul says to consider, he means that Christians should rethink how we live. Christians are to make their choices based on the indicatives we've looked at. That is, based on the truths of what God has done for us. So look at that first command. Consider yourself dead to sin. Yes, you and I still struggle with temptation, both from without and from within. But remind yourself constantly of what Jesus has done for you. Remind yourself of the change that God has made in you and is making in you. And choose to turn away from temptation. Second command, consider yourself alive to God. Consciously put God at the center of your life. Remind yourself of God's promises. Think about what it means to depend on God. Here's something that for I think most of us, we don't like in others, and we don't even like in ourselves, but it doesn't bother God at all. And that's neediness. He doesn't mind. He's not put off in the least by our neediness. He says he will provide everything we need. He knows our weakness, how, how we can easily be distracted, like, uh, whatever, 
like Doug in the movie Up, you know, Squirrel. We just constantly are distracted on things. He knows that. doesn't put him off at all. Next, do not let sin reign in your bodies. Fight sin. Fight temptation. In fact, I've heard of some churches that have developed fight clubs. It's a little bit after the movie idea. Christian fight clubs. To fight sin and temptation, ask God to help you to hate sin, not just in other people, in you. It's easy to hate sin in other people. It's really, it's very irritating. The way other people, things they do, choices they make. What about hating your own? Ask God to help you to hate your own sin. And remember that for all of these commands that God gives us, you can ask God to work this in you because here's something he doesn't expect. He does not expect you to obey these on your own because he knows you and I can't. He knows you and I are in trouble as soon as we try to do it on our own. We're going to look at the last two commands together. They are, do not present your bodies as weapons of unrighteousness. Instead, present your bodies as weapons of righteousness. Now, that's not exactly how we just read it. Okay, because it wasn't the word weapon, it was instrument. But it turns out that the word instruments in the Greek that we translate in English instruments can also be translated as weapons. And when you do, it gives the commands an interesting twist. For example, Jesus told us that Satan seeks to kill and to destroy. And one of his favorite methods, Satan loves to use people like you and me to hurt other people. And when you and I listen to Satan's lies, and when we do hurt others, we become weapons of unrighteousness. Whether it's words, actions, whatever it is. In case you're wondering, I quit preaching and I went to meddling. As Mark Van Gill said, we're now talking about application. Okay? When you and I listen to Satan's lies, we become weapons of unrighteousness. What about that last command? Christians are not only children of God, and I'm, I'm going to mention three different ways to talk about our, a Christian's relationship with God. Children, Christians are not only children of God, they're also called slaves of righteousness and instruments or weapons of righteousness. Now, God is very clear in the Bible. If you are not a slave of righteousness, then you are a slave of unrighteousness. There is no third option. There is no middle ground. It's one or the other. And God's plan, if you want to talk about being weapons of righteousness or instruments, God's plan is to use Christians as his hands and feet. That is, to physically help other people. God's plan is to use Christians as his witnesses, as his ambassadors, as his spiritual salt and light, as instruments of righteousness. That's what the sermon theme is about for the year what God's plans are, his purposes are for his people. And so God wants to use Christians to do good to others. God wants to use Christians to spread shalom. And when I say shalom, I'm not just talking about peace, but also about wholeness. Being right with God and more right with others. Christians are to be both examples and tools. Well, Paul ends his Q&A with a statement of verse 14. You're not under law, but under grace. 
Now, remember with me that the, God's law does several things. First, it commands things like do not steal. It rebukes. It condemns when we break it. It sometimes restrains us from doing things. But there's one thing it cannot do. It cannot rescue us. God's law is good, but we also need God's grace. So we need God's forgiveness and his mercy and all the other gifts that he gives us. Now, when Paul says you're not under law but under grace, Paul does not mean that a Christian can ignore God's law and do whatever we want. And some people read the verse that way. Okay? But that's exactly what Paul has been arguing against in the whole section. But that's not the way to read it. So here's what Paul means, and it begins with this idea. There's a change. There's a new relationship that a Christian has with the law. A Christian is no longer obligated to keep the law in order to get God's favor and to keep God's favor because Jesus has already obtained God's favor for us. A Christian is no longer condemned by God's law because Jesus has paid the debt that we owe. So there's a new relationship. Think of it this way. Every person is created by God, whether that person acknowledges God or not. Every person is, therefore, this follows now having been created by God, that we're obligated, since we're made in the image of God, to mirror God's character and obey God's law. When we obey God's law, we're not only loving him, we're loving others, we're reflecting his character. But because of sin, we won't ever, on our own, ever keep God's law, even if we keep the letter of it in a particular instance, because we don't have the right heart that God requires with his law. So Jesus kept God's law for each Christian. And then he works in each Christian to enable us to love God and to keep God's law more and more, even though right now we're still keeping it imperfectly. So if you're a Christian... Jesus has forgiven you. That's the foundation. Jesus has given you his record of perfect obedience. So when God looks at you, he's not smiling. He's not wondering when you're going to get your act together. Okay? Did I say smiling? He's not frowning. Okay, he's not mad at you. He's not frustrated. When are you, you going to, you know, start doing what you need to do? No. We've been given... His Jesus record. Jesus not only does that, but he enables our adoption by God as his child. And remember before, God is the one who says, if you're not adopted as a child, you're an enemy. And Jesus is the one that enables us to obey. And this is all a long way to saying that a Christian is under God's loving, gracious care. So here's a question. You and I see how great God's love and care is. He's constant. He's faithful. He doesn't change. Do we see it? One of the prayers that you can have, and I prayed for myself and for us as a congregation, that God would open our spiritual eyes so that we can see what's already there, which is God's love and care. So I have one closing thought and then a challenge. Here's the thought. We have seen that we can either act as instruments of unrighteousness or instruments of righteousness. There is no neutral. So where are we? Where are you and I? 
So I want to finish with a challenge by presenting a question. It starts this way. If you are a Christian, that means that God is working in your life. And he's built, working to transform us. So where are you and I in our thinking about the Christian life? Do you think of life, well, I have my regular life and I have my spiritual life. And the two don't really cross over much. That's how you think of life. So that you step out of your regular life into your spiritual life to act as an instrument of God's righteousness. Or is it all one thing? Regular life, spiritual life, it's one life. And so then you're acting as a tool of God's grace in the lives of others, and it's an integral part of who you are. It's an integral part of your regular life. Too often, we pick up the idea, and I can tell you for years, going to church every Sunday, I thought, well, I have a regular life and a spiritual life, and the two don't really cross over that much. And so for me, I was stepping out of regular life to do something good often god says no no your regular life is a spiritual life whether you love god care about him or not if you're a christian and there is this gap pray that god would bring them together in your own thinking so that you can see this all of this all the, the whole sermon has been a reminder of God's truth. You've heard, I'm sure, almost every part, if not every part of what I've said before. Why does God have a pastor stand up every Sunday and tell you things you've heard before? <laughs> because we're not doing them, because we need to be reminded. Well, today, we have a special reminder. And the word remember comes up significantly in our instructions for the Lord's Supper, for communion. 